Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, May 10th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres, and these are today's headlines. The White House responding after a massive cyber attack cripples the nation's largest fuel pipeline. Experts now warning of a potential spike in gas prices following that attack. A gunman opening fire at a birthday party in Colorado over the weekend, leaving six people dead. That tragedy, just one of several mass shootings here in the U.S. over the past days. And cautious optimism from the White House Chief Medical Advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, as officials weigh new potential guidelines regarding the use of face masks indoors. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. A massive cyber attack over the weekend forcing the shutdown of a critical pipeline that delivers nearly half of all the fuel used on the East Coast. The hackers demanding ransom. Rafael Rodriguez has the latest on the repercussions of that attack and what we know so far about those responsible. The clock is ticking to restore one of the nation's largest fuel pipelines. The Colonial Pipeline Company says after hackers hit its system on Friday and demanded a ransom, it was forced to shut down its 5,500-mile pipeline, which supplies nearly half of all gas, diesel and other fuel to the East Coast. That pipeline moves more than 100 million gallons a day, stretching from Texas to New Jersey. The Biden administration issuing emergency transportation waivers to 18 states to help offset the impact but officials fear gas prices could start rising as soon as today. And a new FEMA document outlining that the shutdown could affect the COVID-19 vaccine supply chain. It's not like you can just turn these computers back on again. They are infected. It's going to take time. And that time means that people will begin to see shortages at the pump. They'll begin to see higher gas prices. And we'll see a disruption across the Northeast United States. The company saying Sunday some of its smaller lines are back online, but the main system is still down. Sources telling ABC News that preliminary reports suggest the culprit is an Eastern European criminal organization dubbed Dark Side. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. The Colonial Pipeline also supplies jet fuel to major airports. Meanwhile, company officials say full service could be restored by the end of this week. Meanwhile, the White House is assessing the damage of this latest cyber intrusion and how to respond. Let's go to Edwin Pitti. He's in Washington, D.C., and he has the latest on that response. Edwin? That's right, Lorraine. This hack on a major U.S. pipeline is the latest example of how vulnerable U.S. entities are to cyber attacks. Following the solar wind hack in 2020, the Biden administration was getting ready to issue an executive order threatening cybersecurity for federal agencies and contractors. Now, many are even wondering if it goes far enough. The executive order, which is expected to be issued in the coming days, would establish digital safety standards for federal agencies and contractors that develop software for the government. It would also create a cybersecurity incident review board and require federal agencies to take a zero-trust approach to software vendors. But officials warned the regulations would not prevent the most skilled nation-state attacks that have rocked federal agencies and corporations in the past year. In the meantime, the federal government is working with the firm FireEye to address the problem. 
The White House wants to avoid a historic increase in gas prices that could directly impact drivers and airlines. President Biden said they're using all the resources available within the federal government to reopen the main pipeline. Gina Raimondo, the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, said her agency is working closely with the Colonial Pipeline Company and local authorities to resume operations, but the work also extends to a new partnership with the Department of Homeland Security to help companies be more secure and avoid being victims of these types of cyber attacks. The White House is now saying that cybersecurity is an important part of Biden's proposal on infrastructure, and the president is expected to discuss it with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell on Wednesday during their first White House meeting. We are reporting live in Washington, D.C. Lorraine, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for that report. We'll be watching this story very closely. And in other administration news, the White House announced today that it will reverse Trump-era limits on health care protections against discrimination for gay and transgender people. The Department of Health and Human Services said that its Office for Civil Rights will enforce bans on sex discrimination applying to sexual orientation and gender identity in a shift from the former administration's policies. The move comes after former President Trump's administration ruled to remove Obamacare's non-discrimination protections that prevented health care workers from denying care to patients based on their gender identity or sexual orientation. Meanwhile, in election news, a Republican effort is to roll back access to ballot boxes underway in state houses across the country. And now county election officials are facing a slate of new punishments for expanding voting access last year during the pandemic. The penalties, typically buried within sweeping voting legislation, have already become law in Iowa, Georgia, and Florida. In that last state, for example, election supervisors could face a $25,000 fine if a ballot drop box is accessible outside of early voting hours. Joining me now to discuss the nationwide effort to restrict voting is Jorge Vasquez. He's the director of the Power and Democracy Program at the Civil Rights Organization Advancement Project. Thanks for being here, Jorge. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, especially to talk about this crucial topic. So nice to have you on the show. Can you describe for us what type of penalties could be applied and for what kinds of infractions? Sure. So there's a litany of penalties, but this is really just an attack on democracy. When you think about what happened in 2020, we saw record numbers to the polls. We saw that Latinos and the black community showed out in record numbers. Millennials showed out in record numbers. And what we saw was that when you give people an opportunity to vote, that they'll vote. And now what's happening is that throughout states like Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia, we're seeing that governors are trying to roll back and actually criminalize some of the tactics uh, that were implemented in 2020. So when we look at drop boxes, we want to make sure that people are able to vote outside of traditional hours. Why would you want a drop box inside of an office building that closes at five when many people work hourly jobs and don't get out of work before five o'clock? So instead of saying, listen, we want an inclusive democracy, we want to make sure everyone has access to the ballots, what states are essentially doing are trying to criminalize and punish people for exercising their, their ability to vote and to make sure that their constituents have access to the polls. 
You make really interesting points, Jorge. What is the effect of these penalties on election officials? The penalty on election officials, it, it will eat up their budget, right? It's going to penalize election officials who have been listening to constituents, to voters, as it relates to having access to the polls. So one of the things we do at Advancement Project's national office is that we have a year-round program where we have voters meet secretaries of elections to let them know, hey, listen, this is why I can't vote. This is what to help me vote. This is what to help my community. You have places in Florida that 80% of the voters vote by mail. And now in Florida, for example, with the passage of SB90, it's criminal if somebody assists uh, a handful of voters with delivering their ballots for them. And Juan, let's talk more about Florida. That state's uh, governor signed a wide-ranging bill last week during a made-for-TV moment on Fox that I'm sure you saw. What worries you the most about this bill? The criminalization of voting. What we saw since the death of George Floyd is that individuals have been protesting, have been organizing, and they went to the polls. They went to the polls in record numbers in 2020 in Florida. There's no difference there. People were organized, they were protesting, and they went to the polls. And what this governor did was said, listen, if you protest, we're going to take away your ability to vote. If you vote or if you try to help people with voting, we're going to criminalize you, we're going to penalize you, both financially and criminally. These are nothing more than scare tactics. This is the governor trying to show individuals that he's going to make sure that the southern border is the southern border and that he makes sure that individuals who are black and Latino don't have access to the polls. I mean, when you look at what his legislation has done, it essentially attacks everything that Latino organizers do to help motivate Latinos to go to the polls. For example, I have an aunt who lives in an uh, assisted living facility in Florida. Her daughter comes and assists her and drops off her bat for her. Under this new law, her daughter won't be able to address or help her neighbors who sometimes also need assistance with dropping off their ballot. This also criminalizes individuals for doing things like giving out water, right? We need to make sure that we call these voter suppression tactics out for what they are. They're targeting black and brown voters and attacking the black church, quite frankly, too, who usually has a robust souls to the polls where they pick up their congregations and drop them off at the polls. What this new law says is that hey, you don't even have to keep your polls open on Sundays. And Jorge, another major state, another major uh, measure, Texas is on the brink of signing their own restrictive bill into law. What are some of the key points in this bill in Texas, and what is the real intention? I'm going to start with the real intention, and we're talking about House Bill 6 in Texas. What we saw in Texas was the people of Austin voted. They record numbers, many Latinos what we saw in Harris County was in the 2020 election, the legislature tried to essentially criminalize individuals who were making it accessible during the pandemic for their voters to vote. And what we see is just propaganda. We see a lot of propaganda that's aimed at targeting against black and brown voters. This is nothing more than Texas being Texas and not wanting to and not acknowledge the fact that Texas is more diverse. Certainly no community is, is a monolith, but this is ridiculous. You're saying that a drop box, which is just meant to make sure that everyone has access to the ballot, 
is criminal or that you need to restrict it, there's no need to restrict it. We need to make sure that we're actually implementing better ways and methods for individuals to vote. And instead of implementing better methods so that way all eligible voters have access to the polls, what we see is that Texas is now joining other states and saying we don't want Latinos or Black people to vote. This is nothing more than an attack on Houston, Harris County. This is nothing more than an attack on Austin for record number voter turnout. And Jorge, much has been made out about potential damage to Democrats with all these restrictive laws. But can these limits on voting hurt Republicans as well? Of course, there's a big myth that voters of color only vote one certain party line. <laughs> that can be further from the truth. For example, when I was in Florida during the 2020 election, as we know with Amendment 4, formerly incarcerated persons were able to re-engage in this democracy system and cast votes. Many of them, black and brown voters, were voting Republican, were vocal about voting Republican, yet the Republican Party was attacking them, not because of their party affiliation, but because of their race, because of their national origin, because they saw somebody whose last name was like mine, Vasquez, they were challenging those vote by mail. Because they saw someone was my complexion, they wanted to challenge them at the polls. And what we're seeing now is just a litany of voter suppression tactics that are aimed at ensuring that people who look like us, namely Black and Latino voters, have the ability to vote. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Jorge Vasquez of the Civil Rights Organization Advancement Project. Thank you for having me. And in other election news, White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain does not believe President Biden's likely bid for re-election in 2024 will be smooth sailing. Klain told Axios on HBO Sunday that he's anticipating another bruising election matchup if former President Trump is the Republican candidate. Trump has indicated he plans to run again, including in a recent interview with The Daily Wire last week. The White House chief of staff believes the 2024 race will be won or lost on Joe Biden's record as president. Klain points out that he thought Trump had a bad record in 2020, but he added that he would never underestimate Donald Trump as an opponent if he chooses to challenge Joe Biden again. And Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren isn't ready to retire from politics. A progressive from Massachusetts was a 2020 presidential candidate, but she says she won't attempt another run for the White House in 2024. Warren told WBZ in Boston that she plans to stay in the Senate. This announcement comes as Warren publishes a new memoir that includes her take on gender and the loss of her presidential run. And millions of Americans hitting the skies for Mother's Day travel as more and more people get vaccinated and cases drop to their lowest points in months. The Biden administration is feeling optimistic about the future of the pandemic. Here's the very latest. Record travel during Mother's Day weekend. 1.7 million people screened by TSA on Friday, the busiest travel day since March 2020. I hope that next Mother's Day we're going to see a, a dramatic difference than what we're seeing right now. I believe that we will be 
about as close to back to normal as we can. The U.S. finally making steady progress in the fight against the coronavirus. Cases down at a seven-month low and vaccinations still growing even if at a slower pace than a few weeks ago. I would say we are turning the corner. We now have, as of this morning, 58% of adult Americans with at least one shot. Over 110 million Americans fully vaccinated. The president has set a goal of 70% of Americans being vaccinated with at least one shot by July 4th. So we've got a path ahead of us, which will involve getting people even easier access to the vaccine. Uh, people uh, making sure that people build their confidence, those who have questions about the vaccine, that we answer their questions, and making sure that we do what we've done from the beginning, which is do this in a fair and equitable way. As the FDA prepares to extend Pfizer's emergency use authorization to 12 to 15-year-olds, Dr. Anthony Fauci reassuring parents the vaccine is safe. The efficacy of the vaccine in 12 to 15 years old was essentially 100%, and it was really quite safe. Meanwhile, the CDC updating its explanations on how coronavirus is transmitted, stressing the virus is in fact airborne, and inhalation is one of the main ways it spreads. The agency also getting ready to update its guidance on mask use indoors as more people get vaccinated. But yeah, if you're vaccinated, you're around people who are vaccinated, Clearly, you're going to be far better off. A majority of states, 33, are reporting a decrease in cases and not a single state is reporting an increase in COVID-19 cases in the past week compared to the previous week. And in other coronavirus news, the Oklahoma Attorney General has negotiated a refund for the $2.6 million it spent on hydroxychloroquine. Oklahoma was among the first states to embrace former President Trump's claim that the medication was effective in treating COVID-19, but the FDA later decided that hydroxychloroquine did not help prevent or treat coronavirus and actually even posed serious health risks. Oklahoma threatened major legal actions against FFF Enterprises, who provided the stockpile to the state. They did not receive a refund. The attorney general also implied the state of Oklahoma had been overcharged for the drug. As part of Friday's settlement, the company says it will repay the state in five equal payments, with the first to come in about three weeks. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And further south on the Mexican side of the border near Tijuana, hundreds of migrants unexpectedly receiving life-saving COVID-19 vaccines. And as Ana de Mendoza explains, it was all thanks to a mysterious donor. Hundreds of migrants, mostly of Central American origin, received a COVID-19 vaccine dose at a shelter in Tijuana. A benefactor from California, who acts not to be identified, sent the vaccine to the city of Tijuana for more than a thousand migrants who are in a shelter, Embajadores de Jesus. 
It is fantastic that a donor has given us these vaccines for 1,200 migrants we currently have in this place. The vaccinations were given by the shelter's medical staff. We have professional nurses here doing this work. Many of the migrants in the shelter were expelled from the United States under Title 42. Most crossed the border through Texas. Dania is a Honduran. She says that she decided to get the vaccine to protect her family. To be able to avoid this disease and protect my family. They say they feel grateful, especially because in their countries of origin, it would be difficult for them to have access to the vaccine in the near future. Happy because in my country, I obviously was not going to receive it. I wanted to get it, just in case. And although they do not know if they will try to cross into the United States again, what they do know is that if they return to their countries, they will do so protected and without putting the families they left behind at risk. I am happy because if I go back to my country, I will have the vaccine. But there are many who decided not to get it, such as Pedro, who preferred not to get the vaccine until he could see if other vaccinated people in the shelter get bad reactions. We have to give time and see results of the people who are getting the vaccine. It is expected that a second dose will be given to this group, who would be the first migrants to receive the vaccine in Mexican territory. Reported by Jorge Fregoso in Tijuana, Mexico, Ana de Mendoza, U News. And for thousands of undocumented immigrants in New York City, the Biden administration has provided new hope when it comes to potentially legalizing their status. But as Kelia Tejada explains, immigration advocates are cautioning about being too optimistic. Like many immigrants applying to get legal status in the U.S., Alfaro Mata says he learned a lot from the whole process. No solamente esperar. I just have to wait. And if it happens, do your paperwork with people who really know how to do it. And don't let them fool you. And what is your birthday, sir? It is the same warning from the authorities, starting with the commissioner of New York City's Office of Immigration Affairs. There is no amnesty. That's why New York City distributes information warning undocumented immigrants that immigration reform has not yet been approved, which would allow them to legalize their status. Yes, there are changes happening in D.C., but there is nothing in the law yet. We are waiting and telling people to be cautious. Caution should start by refusing forms that unscrupulous people may offer to fill out in exchange for payment. Still a long way to go. It must go through the Senate and finally be signed by the president in order to become a reality. So don't pay for any form and don't sign for any blank form either because you could be a victim of a scam. Reported by Blanca Rosa Vilches in New York City, Kelia Tejada, U News. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.